Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. First show of 2022. And let's start it off right. Let's use this word, emmerdé. Oh, right. Okay, cheers. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. This is a French verb that has made headlines mm -hmm. this week. It is a crude term, but the sanitized version means to annoy someone deliberately and in a big way. Mm -hmm. and, and a pretty decent translation would be to piss someone off. Yeah, let's mm -hmm. talk straight. So it is a swear word. There is the word merde in there, which mm -hmm. means shit. But the French are actually quite comfortable with strong language on the whole. You can hear the word emmerdé on TV and radio quite often. Yeah, but the issue here is that it was said by the president. Mm -hmm. Emmanuel Macron used the word deliberately in an interview where he said his COVID strategy is to, quote, emmerder the unvaccinated, to piss off the unvaccinated. These are the 10% or so of French people who haven't had an anti-COVID jab. So Macron's government is pushing through a law at the moment that will change the existing COVID health pass into a vaccine pass. Yeah, because until now, so this health pass could be a proof of vaccination or a negative test, and it gets you access to restaurants, movie theaters, other cultural locations. The new pass should be in place next week. will make vaccination mandatory for these things. So a negative test will no longer count. Mm. In his comments, Macron also said that the unvaccinated were irresponsible and therefore non-citizens. Yeah, so very strong words there. Mm -hmm. And certainly not very presidential. Mm. Um, a far cry from his televised speech in mid-December when he talked about bringing people together. So the expression emmerdé does have a history, by the way. Back in 1966, President Georges Pompidou famously used it when he was faced with a pile of decrees that he had to sign. We mustn't emmerdé the French, he said. We mustn't <laughs> bother them with all this paperwork. And even Charles de Gaulle uh, was capable of using crude language when it suited him. Beyond the word emmerdé, though, the issue here is vaccination. Macron has made it central to his strategy to beating COVID. So just over 90% of adults in France are fully vaccinated. That's about 78% of the whole population. So what remains is this hardcore of the 10% who are eligible but not getting it. So there is a segment of that population which is very anti-vax, anti-government, and there have been weekly demonstrations against the health pass. But not all of those unvaccinated people are particularly militant. Some of them are people who've just decided to adapt to the restrictions. And so they're going out less. You know, Clara, for example, she's a 30-something professional. She's changed her lifestyle. She prefers to remote work. She's cycling rather than using public transport. She takes an antigen or a PCR test before she sees friends and family. And she denies any accusation that she's behaving irresponsibly. Sure, I've paid a price because I like going out and seeing people, but I'm kind of resigned and biding my time. When I do want to go out and party, I have an antigen or a PCR test and I take my health pass with me. Macron says that we're irresponsible and he wants to piss people off. But for me, he's already pissing everyone off. 
He is the one responsible for all of this. If he really wanted unvaccinated people to get jabbed, then he would make it obligatory, like he did for wearing masks and for the health pass. I prefer to impose restrictions on myself rather than accept a vaccine that I don't altogether trust. Now, it will, of course, become much harder for people like Clara when the health pass becomes a vaccine pass and they will, in fact, then be more or less excluded from public life. Mm-hmm. So so does focusing on unvaccinated people make sense, though, on a health point of view? Well, Macron and his government implies that these people are responsible for the fact that the virus is still circulating, you know, putting strain on hospitals and so on. Mm. There is no doubt that being unvaccinated is contributing to the strain because a lot of those people in intensive care with COVID are unvaccinated. And and research has shown that while vaccination does not stop infection and transmission, it does significantly reduce it. Yeah, so vaccination is clearly part of the way out of the health crisis. But a recent study by INSERM, that's France's Scientific and Medical Research Institute, has shone some light on these 5 million people who haven't been vaccinated. It found that around about 40% of them were in fact if you like, outside of the system. So poorer people, elderly people living sometimes in isolated rural areas, the homeless, migrants and so on. And many of them are very ill-informed. So, I mean, looking at it in that way, it seems hard to justify calling someone irresponsible if they don't have information or can't physically take action. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you definitely need better outreach for these people. Mm. One of the main researchers in that, uh, Jeremy Ward, he said that when you want to improve vaccine uptake, the number one rule is to avoid confrontation and especially not go out uh, insulting people. So (laughs) Macron's strategy of pissing people off is just counterproductive. Hmm. So, I mean, if that's the situation, then his omerde may have been intended for another audience? Could be. Yeah. <laughs> he still hasn't thrown his hat into the ring as a candidate for the presidentials coming up in April and May. But he did say uh, in that original interview that he wanted to run for re-election. So I talked about this to political scientist Philippe Moreau-Chevrolet, and he told me that Macron was, in fact, speaking more as a candidate than as a president. Emmanuel Macron wants to, you know, appear as a fighter that can practice some dog whistling on his own electorate. He wants to gather his own troops. So he's um, singling out some French people that are not really citizens, as he says. So when you talk about his own troops, then you mean that people who would vote for him are not likely to be, shall we say, sympathetic to the unvaccinated? No, we have polls that show that 84% of Macron's supporters are behind him in this uh, strong statement that he made, and uh, a large part of the right is behind him. So basically, Emmanuel Macron wasn't speaking as a president, he was speaking to his future electorate if he runs for re-election. Exactly. Emmanuel Macron is not the president of uh, all French, as we say in France anymore. He is the candidate of uh, the majority. Uh, At least that's what he wishes. In a way, doesn't that seem quite shocking? I mean, admonishing or even rejecting 10% of the French population? Is it a really unusual move for a president? It's an unusual move on the part of a president because it's a populist technique uh, at uh, two levels. The first level is that he's uh, obviously uh, using strong words, uh, Jean Merde, words that are not not proper language. Yeah, certainly not very respectful. (laughs) And also he's singling out a minority of the people 
and uh, telling to the other persons that this minority is not part of the French citizenship, doesn't belong to the community anymore. That's a populist technique. We see Viktor Orban using that, for instance. We see, In uh, we see Boris Johnson in the UK. We see uh, uh, Trump. But we didn't see a French president doing that yet, and it's quite dangerous. In what way is it dangerous, and in what way could it pay off? It's paying off because the majority of the people wants to get out of this situation and if you choose to tell this part of the population that the people responsible for uh, their predicament are uh, this minority that they should uh, be uh, angry at, obviously it works. It always works in politics to, to single out a minority of the people. But that's not a democratic thing to do because, first of all, it's a lie because the government, I mean, it didn't manufacture this crisis, obviously, but it should be accountable for its own actions and it's not the responsibility of the French population to imagine what could be done against the virus, it's the government. So each one of us has to take his own or her own responsibility in this phase and the government gives the impression that he wants to, you know, reject that responsibility and put it on the shoulders of the unvaccinated. And the second thing is that we don't need something that would divide French people anymore uh, than we are already devised. So it's something that could, on the longer term, it could ruin our uh, effort to build a common ground with the unvaccinated. And uh, all the medical community, all the doctors would tell you that it's not a good thing to do to try to convince someone uh, to get vaccinated and on the other end to shout at him and uh, tell him he's a bad citizen and insulting him. It's not a good thing. It's not working. So I think the main problem in this statement by Emmanuel Macron is that it has no sanitary implications. It's only an electoral segment designated to produce an electoral result and uh, at the expense of our common social fabric. Is there also a danger in your mind of further radicalising what we call the anti-vax movement, which remains relatively small, but pushing them perhaps even further to the right? Or maybe he just doesn't care, Emmanuel Macron. I think Emmanuel Macron doesn't care. What he wants to do is to appear as the only uh, credible candidate for the next election. And uh, he wants to push everyone else on the far right or the far left. And the anti-vax are only a tool that he uses in order to produce that impression that he is the only uh, white knight able to fight against the evidence of our time. And it would seem to be working, wouldn't it? Because even yes. though the Republicans are now divided. I don't have any doubt on the electoral efficiency of what it did yeah. on the short term. But on the longer term, I think it could damage his image because he has been doing it very quickly after a segment that was dedicated to make him appear more sympathetic and nice and caring. <laughs> it was Christmas time and he asked us to love each other and then the next day he's telling us to hate a part of the population that is responsible for our problems. Remember, France 
recently returned some artworks to Benin. Yeah, yeah, the so-called Benin bronzes. So they'd come from the royal treasures that were looted by French colonial troops back in 1892, and they'd been kept until they were returned at the Quai Branly Museum in Paris. Yeah, we've talked about returning pillaged artifacts in the podcast before. I mean, it's something that France and other former colonial powers are grappling with. Yeah, and of course it's quite right, isn't it, that these objects should get returned, but it's interesting to see where they came from mm. because the Benin bronzes came from the Dahomey Kingdom on the Gulf of Guinea in what is now called Benin. Turns out the treasures were a product of the slave trade. Ah, so pillaging and slavery. Yeah, those was old chestnuts. So <laughs> there is a date that allows us to unpick this story a little bit. On the 15th of January, 1894, so 128 years ago this weekend, King Behanzin of Daomi surrendered to the French army after two wars. He was the 11th and last monarch of the kingdom, in fact, and something of an African legend. He's remembered as the monarch who made France tremble. Mm, so tell me more. So the Kingdom of Daomi was founded in 1600 and it lasted for nearly three centuries and it got rich, really, thanks to the slave trade. You'll remember at the beginning of the 18th century, European merchants were really desperate for slaves. They were looking for them all along the west coast of Africa, which became known as the Slave Coast. Now, the king of Daomey, or Abomey, which is the name of the capital of the kingdom, he realized that this could be a lucrative business because a slave was worth the equivalent of six years of income. The king of Daomey became a major intermediary uh, in this sort of triangle, the slave triangle, after the conquest of two slave kingdoms, Alada and Wida. And by the late 18th century, it had grown very wealthy. But then around 1830, the abolitionist movement took off in Europe and so the kingdom had to find new ways of making money. There was an attempt, for example, to redirect their trade towards the African market itself. And then there was some diversification. For example, they turned to palm oil and slaves were used to, to do the harvesting in that. Mm, palm oil became a popular ingredient in Europe and still is, although there are questions about its cultivation, encouraging deforestation and that kind of thing. So it became used in place of olive oil for the mass production of the famous Savon de Marseille or Marseille soap. That's a product from the southern French city. Now, King Behanzin, the king that we're talking about then, he took power in 1889 and he inherited a powerful army of over 15,000 soldiers, but also an elite corps of 5,000 female warriors. Ah. Yeah. Uh, Western historians have dubbed them as the Dahomey Amazons. They certainly were uh, strong and feisty and they served as the king's bodyguards. They were very strong, very loyal, and they had to be because they had to stand up to the French. Yeah, France's presence in West Africa. Africa had been determined by the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 1885. So that was when Europeans cut up Africa into colonies. Mm. The conference confirmed France's presence in the Ouida and Cotonou regions on the coast of what today is Benin. Behanzin managed as best he could, but in 1890, he deployed troops against the French who were then trying to take full control of Cotonou. This came to be known as the First Franco-Deomean War. Behanzin lost. He withdrew his forces and signed an agreement recognising France's protectorate over Cotonou and another port, Porto Novo. And he concentrated his kingdom in the capital, Abomey. Then... In 1892, French troops marched on Obumi. Behanzin refused to let the capital fall into enemy hands. He preferred to evacuate and burn the city to the ground. Mm. Yeah, 
One way of, you know, leaving with a, with a, with a blast. <laughs> yeah, leaving with a blast and making sure it, precisely that no one else yeah. would benefit from mm-hmm. all those treasures, clearly. But the uh, Singbourgie Palace survived the fire, ah. magically. Uh, the French took over and troops got their hands on a number of treasures, including totem statues as well as Behanzin's throne. Mm, and these were among the objects that were returned to Benin in November of last year. Exactly. Behanzin officially surrendered to the French on January the 15th, 1894, under the condition that he be sent to Paris to meet President Sadi Carnot, whom he considered to be his equal. I mean, right. he was a king after all. Yeah, king, president, <laughs> why not? But instead, he was forced into exile. Uh, Mm. to another French territory, the Caribbean island of Martinique. He held court there for 12 years, always with his infamous pipe in his mouth. Apparently, though, he couldn't adapt to the climate and France agreed to transfer him to Algeria, where he died in 1906. Today, he's seen as a hero and a figure of resistance against French colonial rule, which ended in 1960 when Daomi gained independence. And in 1975, it changed its name to Benin. So earlier, right, we talked about emmerdé, the use of this crude word in the language of Molière, as the French language is often called in French. Yeah, uh, Molière, the playwright, he turns 400 this weekend. Mm -hmm. It's a huge anniversary and France is really going big on it. Yeah, I mean, Molière is a big deal here. His plays are huge. I mean, think Tartuffe or The Misanthrope. They're a mainstay of French schooling and they're performed all over the world. Molière was born Jean-Baptiste Poquelin on January 15, 1621. He defied his bourgeois family, went into the theater, and when he started writing his own works, his thing was satirical, burlesque comedy, poking fun at authority. But he's not exactly a radical, I mean, even if some today would like to paint him as a defender of all kinds of rights. He did denounce violence against women, like in L'École des Femmes, the play um, The School for Wives. So a bit of a feminist? I mean, even if obviously that wasn't a word at the time. So some would say that, yes, he was a feminist ahead of his time, as it were. But Aurore Evin strongly disagrees. Ce n'est pas un féministe, c'est certain. He's not a feminist, that's for sure, she says. Evin is an actor, director and a researcher on female playwrights of the 17th century. Molière va dénoncer les abus du patriarcat. Molière calls out abuses by the patriarchy and male violence, but he does not question the patriarchy itself. On the contrary, his ideal couple is one that involves an educated woman, but her knowledge has to remain discreet, and it serves her husband and her family. Eva read Molière like every French child in middle school. She liked the plays, but as she started getting into theater, she began to question how Molière treated women in his plays. For example, making fun of Les Précieuses in his play Les Femmes Savantes et Ridicules, for example. Les Précieuses were the noble women of the 17th century who were educated and literate. Molière's making fun of them in the play actually made them an object of ridicule in real life. Yvonne's research into the female authors of the time came out of her interest in actresses. She didn't actually believe there were any authors. I wasn't looking for them because I didn't even think they existed. I didn't think women could have been authors, that it was allowed at the time, or that they were able to. 
When I started researching these first actresses, I saw that some of them had written some plays. I said, wow, there are women who wrote theatre in the 16th and 17th centuries, and some of them were well known. When Molière was starting out in the 1640s, women had only recently started performing on stage. Until then, men had played women's roles. Very much like in Shakespeare's time. Yeah, yeah. Shakespeare predates Molière by a couple of decades and, and things were shifting. Molière spent over 10 years touring with a theatre troupe all over France with female actors. He co-founded his troupe with Madeleine Béchard, an actress who essentially taught him the business. They were also lovers. At the time, theatre was a mix of written work and improvisation. Molière wrote with input from the actors and actresses. And actors also wrote even some of the women, it turns out, but they were pushed out of the literary canon. And nowadays, classic French theatre, well, it's Molière, it's Corneille, Racine, uh, not many women in sight. No, <laughs> no, not at all. So when Evin started her research in the 1990s, she actually started in the United States. Here in France, ideas of gender and sort of upending the literary canon were academic taboo. Maybe it is a bit easier, don't you think, to, to dig into someone else's culture than it is your own? For yeah. sure, for sure. Um, though today she has managed to republish some of these women's plays here in France and stage some of them. There's the flip side, though. In this anniversary year, now everyone's trying to appropriate Molière, and there's a move to get him included in the Pantheon, for example. So there's an interest in establishing now his Republican credentials. Molière has kind of been taken hostage by a debate that is most probably political and ideological, which needs to sanctify a great man of the French nation. So he's become a feminist. He may well become anti-racist. He'll be made to tick all the boxes of the good Republican citizen of the 2020s. What I'm saying is that while Molière is not a feminist, he has other qualities. This isn't about cleaning up history. That's not the goal. I object to the fact that female authors have been erased from history, but that doesn't mean we should erase the men. And here's an interesting thought experiment. What would Molière have made of all of this? The pomp and circumstance around the anniversary, the appropriation of his legacy? I think nowadays Molière would have targeted all this ridiculousness, people who were trying to sanctify him and make him say things they want to hear. He would have had a lot of targets today. He would have had fun and done a good job, as he did at the time, with doctors, know-it-alls, and unfortunately, women. Oh, Sarah, how times have changed, huh? <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for Spotlight on France, a production of the English service of Radio France International. And this episode was mixed by Erwan Rome. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at spotlight.france at rfi.fr or find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. And you can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on Thursday, January the 27th. Bye, Sarah. Bye.
with a bird in my head. It was singing this sweet little song made for us. It flew around for a while until I got out of bed. Then I got ready and out in the rain to wait for the bus. And every day the sun shines, I'm reminded of every good night kiss we've ever shared.